This is hell. Alex, we are getting a lot of requests for you to reveal the music before we go on air. Tell people what we played before we went on air. So what was the music that you just played? That was uh, Dorothy Ashby's, oh, keep playing it too. That was Dorothy Ashby's, the fantastic jazz harp of Dorothy Ashby. Yeah, so I'm going to try to get you, uh, do you keep track of this? Because a lot of people have been asking me what song you played before each show. Uh, no, sorry, just let's keep track of my mic button right there. No, I don't. <laughs> okay. All right, so maybe we'll do that from now on somehow. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. Back in January of 2020, when the coronavirus outbreak had just come to the United States, before it had infected even a handful of people in Washington, the state of Washington, we spoke with sociologist Adner Usmani about the economic origins of mass incarceration. Adner said, a country which doesn't redistribute from rich to poor, a persistent feature in American history, is a country doomed to respond to violence and crime with penal policy only. That's the heart of the issue, the failure to redistribute from rich to poor, the failure of the American working class, the American labor movement, and the weakness of the Democratic Party, making it impossible for the United States to launch a social policy response only punishment. Adner argued because we do not have or strive for equality, and I would go so far as to say that inequality is enforced through law enforcement, the only way the state knows how to respond to demands for equality is through more punishment and violence against an already punished and violated society. Then back in November, we spoke with researcher Duncan Tarr, co-author of the report First 90 Days of Prisoner Resistance to COVID-19, Report on Events, Data, and Trends from Perilous, the uh, Operation Perilous. Duncan explained how a rash of prison uprisings during the COVID-19 pandemic were being predictably met with more violence, more punishment, and more abuse by prison staff. Duncan reminded us that Yes, prison uprisings were happening before the virus, but with new crises, as always, things got even worse for the incarcerated. Duncan told us when we say social distancing is impossible in these facilities, that's not a claim out of nowhere. There are eight prisoners sleeping in a four-man cube. When the virus hits one of these facilities, even if the wardens really wanted to stop the spread and save prisoners' lives, and they don't, there's an impossibility to it, unless prisoners are getting released. Since shortly after that conversation, there has been an uprising at the St. Louis City Justice Center. And again, it's not only about COVID-19, but the pandemic has revealed to many outside prisons and jails just how abusive incarceration can be and is. We'll find out what is happening in St. Louis City Jail and the uprising conditions have sparked when we uh, decide, when we speak in a few minutes with criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minko, who wrote the Black Agenda Report. Spirit of self-emancipation continues to rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on the Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll share with you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how has your week gone so far? Is there for real a duck in a baby carriage at the bar the other night? Yes, there was. What the hell's going on? <laughs> I don't know. Why am I staying inside my house all the time? <laughs> I don't know, but when I walked in, the bartender said, 
uh, you have to go in the beer garden. I said, why? And he goes, just go in the beer garden. I said, what's with the baby stroller? He goes, go in the beer garden. <laughs> That's when I met a duck. Did you get a name for this duck? You know what? Uh, my girly did, but I was not in on that conversation. Allie Miller. Yeah. <laughs> this week I was reminded about how cautious I've been during the pandemic to make certain that I do not contract the virus. How my girlfriend and I have not changed our safety protocols that at all, really, since the beginning of the outbreak, other than we both stopped wearing gloves every time we go outside. And while I, I haven't been infected by COVID-19, I'm, I'm totally vaxxed. I still cannot enjoy the freedom so many are exercising as I'm unwilling to take the risk of still being able to transmit the virus to those who are not fully vaccinated in my household, namely my girly. This, is, this all means I can't have the fun so many of my friends are going to be having here in Chicago this weekend. There's a big get-together where I do not feel safe getting together with them. I can't have that kind of unmasked outdoor fun until Thursday, June 3rd. Not that I'm counting the days until I can finally have a beer in the beer garden downstairs without getting a beer all over my mask. But it's 35 days. Five weeks exactly. More importantly, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell is, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? <laughs> what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our swag right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Remember... This is Hell is completely listener-supported, so without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Brett B. for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to show his tithing-like commitment to This is Hell. And thanks to Mitchell K. for his very, very kind contribution to the show. Mitchell writes, I've been listening to your show for at least two years, mostly using Stitcher. Alex, we're on Stitcher? See, I learn something every day from our listening audience. I was blown away by your show with James Doucette Battle on his book Sweetness in the Blood on Race and Diabetes. Not because of the subject matter, I was already a convert to the evils of sugar, although I do indulge occasionally. James Doucette Battle is one of the smartest men alive, at least amongst those who get some media attention. In, the po- in this podcast, he shows his, in your podcast, he shows his brilliance in how to analyze a situation problem. His coverage was deep, wide, nuanced, straightforward, insightful, and a few other things I probably failed to mention. Sadly, he's almost one of a kind and definitely an endangered species. I immediately purchased his book, Sweetness in the Blood. Please have more guests like this. Thank you and best regards. Mitchell in Venice, California. P.S. I finally got off my ass and sheepishly finally donated to your efforts. I'm a loyal listener. And Mitchell, we appreciate your loyalty. Thanks for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show. Following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, we will be announcing the winner. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff processes his reaction to the greatest cosmic blunder. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again this week's question from hell. What about this pandemic? Are you going to miss about... (laughs) <laughs> what about this pandemic? Uh, what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? What about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Real quick, we got mail. We've been telling you how much 
mail we've been getting lately and how you can actually send us actual stuff in the actual mail by addressing it to this is hell 2251 west devon avenue second floor chicago illinois 60659 and our good friends at kp printing have yet again sent us something in the mail from detroit now the note says chuck you never ever ever talk to printers here are two books about radical printers on printing in radical politics we hope you will have these printers on put your these printers on your list of people you can learn from. Then he, they send two books. One is Celebrate People's History, the poster book of resistance and revolution, second edition edited by Josh McPhee with a forward by uh, Charlene Carruthers and Rebecca Solnit. So both people who have been on our show before, as well as another wonderful-looking book, The Detroit Printing Co-op, The Politics and the Joy of Printing by Danielle Aubert. I cannot thank you folks enough over at KP Printing for sending this, and you sent another one of your 6 by 8 inch cards. You sent some that say, free your mind and your ass will follow, these beautiful artistic cards. Biden, the last sexist president. Progress brings its own problems. And this time you sent us one that says, Biden, the last capitalist president, which is just as funny as the one where it says the last sexist president. So thanks to the incredible printers at Detroit's KP Printing. And if you want to send us actual stuff in the actual mail, you can by sending it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, we'll find out what's behind the inmate and detainee uprisings at the St. Louis Justice Center. Who's kidding who? It's a freaking jail. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week. And we will have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff processes his reaction to the greatest cosmic blunder. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you what's happening on the show next week. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell St. Louis County, which includes St. Louis City, has been the site of violence by law enforcement for a very, very long time. That violence culminated in the Ferguson Uprising, which began in August 2014. Those uprisings, three, there were, there were several, revealed to the outside world that what the people of St. Louis County have known for a very, very long time, law enforcement engages in systemic abuse of the people they are supposed to serve and protect, especially when the people they are supposed to be serving and protecting are people of color, and especially African Americans. So it should come as no surprise that if, if the police on the streets are that abusive, the jailers in what's called the St. Louis City Justice Center continue that abuse once citizens are incarcerated, jailed to do nothing but wait for a court date for who knows how long. And with the jails and courts backed up, plus the impact on trials due to the pandemic, that wait is getting longer and longer. Here to help us see behind the walls, to tell us what's happening in the St. Louis jail uprisings, criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minka wrote the Black Agenda Report article, Spirit of Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. Welcome to This is Hell, Adolfo. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, is there some? Let's just start with something in a real more general way. Is there something about St. Louis County, not just St. Louis City, but St. Louis County, when it comes to law enforcement, from the police on the street to the jailers in the jails? Is there something systemic throughout the whole system? that creates this abuse because whether it's Ferguson, whether it's what we've been seeing in St. Louis with uh, cops abuse of police or uh, cops abuse of the citizenry or whether it's in jail and the abuse, is there something 
unique about St. Louis, or do you think this is just reflective of the United States in general? Uh, I think it's the latter and not the former. I think it's, it's indicative of what you have when you have a capitalist society, um, when you have people being ex, uh, exploited and degraded in their workplaces, um, and the uh, police, they are the, the lap dogs of capitalists and, and the state. So they are there to keep people from rebelling and to, and to quell any, uh, any uprising or any rebellion from, from even trying to surface. So that's the role that the police play in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and every other place in the United States and, and really throughout the world. I was trying to think of what makes this unique. The St. Louis City Justice Center is in downtown St. Louis. What effect, if any, does that location have on the St. Louis jail as a site of protest inside the jail and out? Because I, I couldn't help but think about you know, uprisings at jails or prisons that are in far more remote places that are away from the eye of the public and what might be happening there. So is there something unique about these uprisings because the St. Louis Justice Center is in downtown St. Louis? Um, I don't think so. I think that the, uh, the people that are incarcerated, they are taking the lead um, and, and like I, like the title of the article says, the, the self-emancipation. They're, they're taking the lead in their own emancipation, um, throwing off the shackles of degradation and oppression. And uh, that's setting a great example um, for, for oppressed people um, everywhere in, in a certain sense. I don't think um, what's happening in St. Louis is unique. I worked in Jackson, Mississippi. There were uprisings in the jail. There during my time uh, working and living in, in Hines County um, in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, so, so no, no, it, it's not anything special. Um, the jails and prisons throughout the United States, they are powder kegs waiting to explode at any time. Sometimes the social conditions and the, uh, just, just the, the, the fact that people are just tired and can't take anymore the conditions inside of these places, they just strike the powder keg and things explode um, spontaneously. You said spontaneously, and I wanted to ask you about that because these protests started back in December, and then there was another wave of protests in early February, and now another wave of these protests in early April. Were there specific events that sparked each of these protests, or is it not about a singular thing that happened? Well, based on when I talked to my clients, they were telling me that the brutality of the guards from the inside, they were, they were uh, attacking people. They were spraying people in the face um, with pepper spray, just point blank range. Um, they were denying people food. They were denying people phone calls. They were denying people fresh bed linens, um, under change of underclothes and all of these things. Um, sparked this kind of enough is enough kind of spirit um, within the people um, in the St. Louis City Justice Center. And things have been rumbling um, in November, December, and the administration at that time, they tried to basically shrug it up under the rug and say, well, it was some unknown disturbances. And that's when um, shortly after 
um, the, the, the first rebellion, the first, what I call the first major rebellion happened in February 6th when they, at the beginning of the year, they basically were trying to sweep things under the rug and say that it's an unknown disturbance, everything under control, this, this and that. But as you point out, the uh, cruelties, the abuse uh, by the people in the St. Louis uh, jail, city jail, that started even before the pandemic did, obviously. And they are protesting not just COVID-19, which we'll get to in a bit, but they're protesting the ongoing abuses that have been happening since 2019 and before. Is there any sense from your clients that the brutality has increased over the last year since the pandemic started? And, and more, more importantly, has the brutality increased since the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed? Um, based on my discussions with clients about the conditions in the jail, um, and, and I just have to point out, St. Louis City Justice Center is only one jail in, in St. Louis City. There's another one called the Medium Security institution or it's infamously called the workhouse um, that that officials they had been promising to close for some time I think over the past year and a half or two years it was a whole campaign um, of people various activists and things of that sort um, talking about closing the workhouse and it never happened and now the new administration of Tashar Jones, uh, she was just elected on April 6th. Now she's coming with uh, a number of promises to inmates and things of this nature. Um, so, so, but from my conversations with my client, they, was, they have told me that these abuses, um, it wasn't any special intensification, I think, um, the, the spirit to be free of oppression and the, to be free of degradation. Um, eventually, people say enough is enough, and, and that's what happened. Are, uh, are the acts of abuse that are happening within the St. Louis City Jail, are these random acts of repression or is it systemic repression? Because, I mean, both are awful, cruel, and brutal, but they are awful, cruel, and brutal in their own awful, cruel, and brutal ways. So is this random repression or is it more something that you can, this is horrible to say, but as an inmate, count on it because it's so systemic? I think it's constant. I think it's unrelenting. The, the nature of caging human beings is a violent thing to keep people in a cage, to keep people running about, kicking them about, pushing them about every day, that's a violent business. Um, and this is something that people can no longer afford to overlook. People on the outside of the prisons, um, they have to realize that this is the violent business that folks are involved in in their names. And, and really, ultimately, ordinary people, I think if if justice or, or some semblance of justice is to be done, ordinary people must take the reins of government. They must control their own um, political, social, um, and judicial affairs and economic affairs, because it's clear to me that elite professional politicians above society have failed um, ordinary people at every turn um, and they are not fit to, to be some kind of uh, torchlight of, uh, or embodiment of culture and government. 
Well, let's touch on those government leaders just for a moment. The St. Louis Dispatch had an editorial saying that it was sad, but the jail clearly needed an oversight board, which I found to be an odd sentence. And then U.S. Representative for Missouri's 1st Congressional District, Cori Bush, who, which includes St. Louis City, told local news that she had asked city leaders to, quote, publicly release COVID-19 testing and case rates, the use of segregation and solitary confinement, and the conditions of the jail. We are counting on the city to be more transparent. Of the acts uh, that you say are of well-documented repression, how much of a priority is COVID-19 to activists in and outside of the jail? Does addressing COVID-19 address the most serious problems facing inmates and detainees? Well, COVID-19, it was a it was a case of life and death. So I really can't sit up here and tell you how uh, the inmates or the detainees on the inside, how they rank a thing or not. Um, but COVID-19, it was a, a serious and is not was because it's not over. It is a serious matter of life and death. I understand that some uh, detainees have begun receiving vaccinations and, th- and things of that nature. But I think having to sit um, for months on end, waiting for court dates, when they have court dates, they're not being taken over in person, and it's they they just being warehoused. Um, and the warehousing is not something new to uh, the pandemic. I mean, it's not something new to to the to the uh, pretrial detention situation. But I think the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic it exacerbated it um, because. You had a time where where tensions are high, angst and anxiety is high. People they're wondering what's going on with their family members. Um, people are getting sick, and they they just see no end in sight of sitting and languishing in, in hellish conditions. You mentioned that McPhee Center. You described it as a, a workhouse. How is that facility different from the St. Louis Justice Center, from what we might think of as a typical jail? Well, I just think that the uh, the workhouse is a much older facility, and that and that is the argument that that people are using. They saying it's a much older facility; it shouldn't be used to house people. It's dirty, it's decrepit, it has mice and rats and roaches running around. But you go into any jail or prison, um, almost any jail or prison throughout the United States, and you see those same conditions. They they. They are perennially put jails um, under consent decrees by the federal government and things of this nature and the same abuse and and misuse continues unabated. Nothing ever happens. So I always thought that activists were off base by saying that the workhouse just needs to be closed. Both jails needs to be closed. And now the detainees at the St. Louis City Justice Center has shown and proved that the that the MSI is no worse than the St. Louis City Justice Center. In fact, I was speaking to a client the other day, and he was telling me because recently the new mayoral administration, Tashar Jones, along with the uh, city circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, and, and the woman who you mentioned, Corey Bush, they did a tour and spoke to inmates out at the jails, both the city justice center and uh, the workhouse. And and basically did a walkthrough there and, and talking about closing the workhouse. But I think mere talks just about closing the workhouse 
they don't go far enough. Um, you need both of these uh, facilities um, shut down. Both of, if, if we want to talk about, there is no such thing as a humane jail or prison. That, that's absurd. That's absurd. You cannot reform a jail or prison. Um, these, these institutions are institutions of degradation and exploitation and, and barbarity. And these, the folks who are above society, who rule above society, they claim they are civilized. They claim that they rule over a, a civilization. If it was the case, you wouldn't have these kind of institutions in existence anymore. You also point out that St. Louis Mayor, prior to Mayor Jones, lit a Crusens, uh, task force employed to investigate conditions at the jail following the first major rebellion was refused access to investigate the fifth floor where this is where you have administrative segregation, which is also referred to as the whole. That's the area you explained, you know, it was de- designated for that kind of uh, treatment of prisoners. And you add that this exposed how much a farce the body of misleaders tapped by the mayor were and that their task was to pacify, not ameliorate, with respect to conditions at the jail. So, wait a second. Who refused the task force access? Can the mayor of St. Louis get access to the area where you say inmates are being abused for participating in an uprising? The mayor should have been able to get it. Um, You just saw the mayor, uh, this this mayoral administration, and and I want to be clear about something. I'm not on this bandwagon with the new mayor, mayoral administration because all she is doing right now is publicity. It's a publicity stunt to ensure that more uprisings don't happen. She's making promises to detainees at these jails saying that she's going to get them home and she doesn't even have the authority to get anybody home. She's in the executive branch. She doesn't deal with who gets detained or or who goes home. So she's giving people false hope as far as I'm concerned in an effort to quell the self-emancipating spirit of the detainees that is present and and on the surface um, in these jails. She's trying to avert further rebellion um, in the city of St. Louis. And these people, they use their social identity as black people to, to legitimate their rule above society and say, well, because I'm a black woman or because um, I come from a background where some of my family members have faced victimization, then I understand where you coming from and you should trust me. But these people, they work at the behest of capital and the state. Um, Tashara Jones, her campaign raised uh, overwhelming funds over the over her opposition. That was a nod from capital and the state that she was all right and that she was going to do a good job and keep things in order. And that's what what is on on the table today, all throughout the United States, where you see these black mayors um, of cities, they talking about they're the people's mayor and they're going to make their cities the most radical cities on the planet and things like this. But you still have police murder. You still have brutality in jails. You still have Black-led police states that still conquering and killing ordinary Black and poor people. 
You write that Circuit Attorney Gardner's office has yet to find any criminality among among the black misleaders who orchestrate the abuse of inmates from their administrative posts. How do administrators orchestrate abuse in the St. Louis City Jail? Well, they preside over it. They know that the degradation is going on. Like I pointed out um, in the article, it was a woman, she was a low, a low level uh, correction officer or whatever. I don't know exactly the title, but she worked as a jailer um, in the St. Louis City Justice Center. She was indicted by the uh, Circuit Attorney Gardner's office for facilitating um, abuse by other guards of another, I mean, by, by detainees on another detainee which resulted in his jaw being broken. This woman's name was Demiria Thomas, I believe. Um, but she is just she is just low-hanging fruit. At the very top of this thing is, is violence and degradation. So the, so the violence and degradation at the upper echelons of the city government, where the, where, the, where the top officials are, it begets the violence that you see in the jails and on the streets and everything else, where you have people languishing um, under unemployment, under impoverishment conditions, um, this is violence. When people don't have food to eat, when people don't have the, the proper housing and things of that nature, these, these are, uh, these are, this is violence. So the violence from above society begets the violence that we see. But this is not the violence that these people ever want to talk about. You're right that uh, Circuit Attorney Gardner's anti-racism is counterfeit and is primarily based on, as you're pointing out with Mary Jones, her social identity as a black woman, not her deeds. So what happens at OFO, in your opinion, to anti-racism more generally when it is defined by some through identity and not deeds? What impact can that have on anti-racism more generally it's an anti-racism that holds hands with the state as the ordinary people at the bottom of society are brutalized it's a totalitarianism that's what it is these people use their identity to tell ordinary people that i am the embodiment of your freedom and dignity and justice, when that's not the case, they preside over the police state. They preside over the carceral state. And then because these people are black, you have activists who um, align with these rulers in oppressing people and legitimating their rule above society. That's the issue. That is the mode of rule today that must be addressed. These people talk about a white racial state as more and more black people are elected to public office above society and perpetuate the same forms of degradation and exploitation. These people are not anti-capitalist. They are not anti the police. They talking about reforming the police. They talking about defunding the police. They not talking about abolishing the police. They talking about redistributing. We don't need rulers to distribute wealth. Ordinary people, we create the wealth. We create the housing. We grow the food. So we don't need any middleman. We don't need these rulers to redistribute these things. We need to arrive on our own authority and establish our own self-government and abolish the uh, governments that claim to embody our freedom. 
For years and years, you know this, that more we've been told more racial and ethnic and gender diversity, you know, that's going to fix everything. If we just had more elected representatives with more racial and ethnic diversity and gender diversity, everything will be fixed. Have we simply yet to elect enough black government leaders to achieve an end of the white racial state? Well, the first thing is the white racial state has been abolished in most places. Now, if you go somewhere like Mississippi or Georgia or Alabama and some obscure counties, even in some uh, northern uh, states, um, where you go to some kind of rural places where the white racial state is still in place, but the white racial state is still not in place in New Orleans. The white racial state is not in place in Jackson, Mississippi. The white racial state is not in place in Atlanta, Georgia. The white racial state is not in place in Buffalo, New York. The white racial state is not in place in Houston, Texas, where all of these places that have elected black mayors, black uh, district attorneys, circuit attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, where they have uh, predominantly um, uh, black county boards, where so, so what's, the, what's the talk about a white racial state? People like Kim going to open up their mouth and talk about a new Jim Crow. It ain't no new Jim Crow. These people want to say that it's new Jim Crow. That implies that the mass incarceration is being done by white people when it's black people in the office that are mass incarcerating. When you go to St. Louis City Justice Center or MSI, you see the vast majority of those people are black and you ask who put them there. It's Kim Gardner's office that put them there. It wasn't somebody white that did that. So what are people talking about? That needs to be the discussion. These are the questions that have to be raised today. You write that the self-emancipating activity of detainees has done more in two months to expose the bankruptcy of the municipal government than phony prison reform activists who speak of a new Jim Crow have done in a decade. Why do you believe these jail uprisings have done more for prison reform than talk of the new Jim Crow? It has done more because before these people rose up, wasn't any nobody was studying what was going on at the jail except those people who, who loved ones are in jail or people like me who work closely and 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 uh are serious about what is happening to people in jails and prisons in the United States. Otherwise, people weren't paying attention. Lida Cruzan, um, the previous mayor, she wasn't talking about the conditions in the jail. The conditions were the same, though. Nobody was talking about it. It is these detainees that put the discussion on the table. It is because these detainees that Tashar Jones, Corey Bush, and Kim Gardner are running out there trying to quell or, or suppress any more rebellion going on at the jail because they know that continued rebellion places their power in jeopardy. It caused their legitimacy into question. It caused the lie that because black people rule above society, that equals progress for the most oppressed. That puts that into question. And they cannot have that. So they're going to do what is necessary to suppress further rebellion, just like what we saw um, this past summer um, with the George Floyd rebellion. These people say all kind of stuff, um, trying to quell the various rebellion in various cities across the United States. They started talking about defund the police, which was something that was created 
out of the out of the left block of capital or the cultural apparatus of the Democratic Party. That was not something that came up organically. This is something that was that was grabbed and and, and that was co-opted by the Democratic Party. A talk about redistribution. That's not talking about bringing forth a real and substantive change to the situation. These people are not going to do that because they work at behest of, the, of capital in the state. But they will they will tell they will put forth they will make projections as if they're going to do something when, in order to uh, th- no go ahead go ahead well I, the one example that I can point to is the whole uh, the Chauvin verdict or whatever they had to they had to convict that man they knew that more cities would burn they knew that more private property would burn they know that they knew that capital. Uh, would be placed in jeopardy if that man walked away free. So they always have to have a scapegoat at a certain point in time, but the permanent slaughter still continues. Even during the trial, black people and, 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 and white people and everybody else continue to be brutalized and killed by the police state. That didn't stop. Um, Chauvin, Derek Chauvin going to prison, that's just one person. The whole system should be condemned. The whole system got to go. And there can be no advising the state. The state, as it currently stands, it got to go. It, it, it must go. Ordinary people have to arrive on their own authority and establish their own self-government and hold the reins of society if we are going to have um, a new society based on the principles of mutual aid and cooperation and not greed and exploitation. You write that well before the pandemic, detainees here have have been warehoused for years at a time as they await trial. St. Louis Public Radio reported the day following the April 4th uprising, a group of inmates at the Justice Center in downtown St. Louis left their cells and sparked an uprising to draw attention to how long prisoners are there awaiting trial. Throughout the disturbance, inmates chanted, we need help and we want court dates. No one was injured, a spokesperson for Mayor Krusen said. So how much of that lack of court dates is due to the pandemic and how much is this an issue prior to the pandemic did the pandemic just make it worse backlog the the uh, court dates even worse yes the pandemic exacerbated the situation um but like i stated before um you had people waiting for years on end especially on serious cases like like murder cases and, and some higher level of assaults and other uh so-called violent offenses um, people had to wait in jail. Some of this was because of the incompetence and ineptness of, of uh, the prosecutors. They not getting uh, defendants um, the, the necessary evidence that they need before they can go to trial. Um, so, so it's a number of factors that play into this, but, but to answer your question directly, yes, the pandemic exacerbated, but but the problem existed well before the pandemic. You say this is incompetence by prosecutors to give evidence to those who are going to be facing trial or court dates. Do you think that's purposeful, intentional incompetence? Well, sometimes it is. Sometimes we know that prosecutors 
uh, throughout the United States. We've seen cases that was undertaken by the Innocence Project and other uh, initiatives. They come back 20 years, 30 years after somebody has served these years in prison, been away from their family, and they find out that a prosecutor, they have hidden uh, key evidence that would have exonerated them. Um, and many times these people are never disbarred. They never go to jail. But you have somebody who have had their lives snatched away. They have been away from their families. They have been away from their children. Um, so th this is commonplace because as much as these people want to talk about progressive prosecutors, that, that's, that's an oxymoron. And, and, and we have to understand that progressive means absolutely nothing. Being a progressive doesn't mean anything. That means that a progressive is nothing but somebody who's trying to recognize, uh, reconcile ordinary people with the permanent slaughter. They're trying to convince ordinary people that this system can self-correct when we've seen year after year, decade after decade, that the same thing continues to go on. How far could ending cash bail go toward ending the problem that is happening right now with detainees awaiting trial in St. Louis Justice Center? Well, if you look around the country, ending cash bail, that doesn't stop people from being held. These people, they still have another safety valve or uh, yeah, a safety valve to go to um, because they can just say, well, we find that these people are a danger to the community or they are flight risk and people can be held on that basis. So they can just be denied bond altogether. And people are denied bond altogether all the time on serious cases, even when it's a case of clear self-defense, even when it's a case of when people cannot be identified as the person based on the evidence, even when these people don't have the evidence to sustain charges, people still continue to languish in jail because the officials, they don't have the courage to dismiss a case and they just want to let it play out. They don't want to step on the circuit attorney's toes or whatever the case may be when they claim that it's a system of justice. So uh, to you, what explains why prosecutors are seemingly not concerned about criminal abuse being committed in jails and prisons? Why do prosecutors turn a blind eye to those committing criminal acts against inmates and detainees? Why is that crime relatively ignored? Because these people know that this is the cost of doing business, just like people turn a blind eye to all of these people being killed in the street by the police. They pay some money and then it's a get, get out of jail free card. We'll pay the family off. Uh, we'll pay them some kind of civil settlement. The same thing goes on in jail. People sue for abuses that happen in jail. It's the cost of doing business. They know the business that they're in and they know that they can't they can't go too far. Every once in a while, they will prosecute uh, this person or that person, but it's always a low-level person. As we pointed out earlier, um, um, uh, as we pointed out earlier with the woman Demuria uh, Thomas in the uh, St. Louis City Justice Center. So these people, like Malcolm said, these people are criminal, but, but he was talking about white people. I'm not talking just about white people. I'm talking about whoever rules above society and heat degradation and exploitation on the heads of ordinary people, whether they be blue, black, red, or brown. 
And that's another thing about mass incarceration. These people open up their mouth and they always say black and brown people being mass incarcerated. You got millions of white people in jail and prisons today throughout here. And these people won't open up their mouth. I guess they think that all white people are criminals too. Poor white people, because those are the ones that are in jails and prisons. The poor white people, along with black and brown people who are poor and exploited and degraded. So this whole thing is a farce, man. And it has to be uncovered. People have to pull a cover back off of this thing. And it needs to be exposed. And that's what that's why I write. We trying to expose certain things and we have to oppose the rulers above society, no matter what their identity is. Well, let's talk about what that opposition might look like, because you write many organizations, institutions and personalities claim to represent justice. Most are compensated to play charades that they are guardians of ordinary people as they contain our better instincts. When the prisoners move under great adversity, under grave consequences that imperial mayors, prosecutors and judges are not ever are not even permitted to discover. We are reminded what is required as they lay more eggs, the further breaking up of the old world so we can arrive at a new beginning. That is what the Easter season truly promises. What would breaking up the old world look like to you when it comes to incarceration? Well, the first thing that has to be pointed out, it goes beyond incarceration. We're talking about a new society, period, where ordinary people um, will establish um, what public safety and security looks like not some elite representatives who who work at the behest of capital and the state apparatus. But with respect, look, today it's so widespread that almost everywhere you point out, you have people who are literally, I wanna, I'm not just being hyperbolic, hyperbolic here when I say this. You have so many people who are activists for the state who pretend that they are for some kind of freedom struggle. You have mayors talking about, like I said before, in Jackson, Mississippi, where I was, and in other places, they talking about a radical city. They talking about capitalism and all of these kind of things. And they all have activists around them who claim to be for justice and freedom of ordinary people. But all of these people prop up the legitimacy of these various governments who preside over the exploitation and degradation of the masses of people. So that's the first thing that has to be attacked. You have to have uh, people who are really independent of the state address these issues. You can't have people that operate inside the cultural apparatus of the Democratic Party, taking money from the Rockefeller, the MacArthur um, Foundation, um, and these other foundations like many of these activists are, like the Black Lives Matter movement. That's a prime example. Now certain things are coming out about that, where, where, these, where they are saying that these people who were at the highest echelons of the Black Lives Matter movement, they getting they're getting millions of dollars. They're getting all kind of movie and art deals and book deals. They're being flown around the country. 
if you a real anti-imperialist, if you are really for the freedom and justice for people, such people don't get flown around. They don't get paid millions of dollars to do that. People get buried. People get killed behind this kind of stuff if they serious about it. But I'm not saying people always are killed. That's, that's not the case either. But I'm making a point that these activists who operate inside and outside of the Democratic Party are playing around. They are not serious about these issues. And it's like when I brought up the point where, like in, when I was in Mississippi, they had this, uh, this prison reform outfit that talked about um, reforming, they re reforming the uh, reforming Parchment Penitentiary, the infamous Parchment Penitentiary. But at the same time, the uprisings and, and, and things were happening in Parchment, they were happening at other jails and prisons. And another thing, these people didn't address these issues while a black uh, Mississippi Department of Corrections uh, officer was in. They waited till after she stepped aside and and uh, scores of people had been killed under her watch. But these black activists never addressed this woman. She they never said anything about the degradation and, and outright brutality and murder that was happening under her watch. But then they go and talk about parchment prison when the whole thing is rotten. They want to play musical chairs. They want to play musical jail cells. Not this jail cell over here. This one is more humane. It's total nonsense. And like I said, it's a charade. It's a farce. And it's really disrespectful to people's intelligence who can see and look and point out these things. Adolfo, first, I want to tell you, I've really enjoyed our conversation because it's been very informative and very enlightening. And we were supposed to and probably 10 minutes ago, and I couldn't stop asking questions because this has just been a fascinating conversation. I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minka, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation, continues to rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. Adolfo is pub assistant public defender in St. Louis City. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write the inmates' continued desire to expose the barbarism masquerading as civilization that is the carceral state evinces that they have been resurrected. Indeed, like Christ on the third day, they have risen. Barbarism masquerading as civilization. The quote that's been likely cited the most on our show since we started back in 1996 when it comes to the carceral state is Dostoevsky's famous adage, the degree of civilization in the society can be judged by entering its uh, prisons. What degree of civilization is there within the walls of U.S. prisons and jails? And what degree of civilization is there outside prisons surrounding it? past those walls what what does it and what does it say about our civilization when it takes a pandemic to recognize carceral abuse Chuck, this is the one thing that me and my comrades have been talking about this whole distinction between inside and outside of prison is total nonsense and it got to be abolished people got to stop playing around with this kind of thing you got people inside the prisons who complain about not having clean water, not having access to water, 
and in the cities that I've lived in and been in, you have people on the outside talking about sewage in their front yard. They talking about water problems. They talking about lead and water and all of these kind of things. You got people being killed inside the jail. And then when you walk outside the jail, you got police who beat, brutalize, conquer and kill uh, ordinary people at the drop of a hat. So when you look at the conditions inside the jail or you look at the conditions outside the jail, they mirror one another. So the question, the ball is in both sides court. The question is what, what is going to happen? What are people going to do? What are people going to do? Are they going to arrive on their own authority or they're going, or, or are they going to continue to give up their authority to rulers who claim to be the embodiment of their freedom and uh, some kind of democracy, I think they should do the former and not the latter. And that's that's the point that, that I continue to raise and continue to agitate and continue to put forward. And I will continue to do so. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. This has been just a fascinating conversation, and you can count on the fact that we'll be annoying you in email in the future to have you back on the show, Adolfo. I really appreciate you being on. We have been speaking with criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minka, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. And again, I want to thank the great folks over at Black Agenda Report who have been supporting and uh, very, very uh, big contributors to our show since its very beginning. So thank you very much for being back on the sh- or being on the show, Adolfo. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right. Y'all too. Thank you. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. It airs every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago Times podcast shortly after at the same place. If you heard yesterday's show, at the end I mentioned that someone who had been a guest on This Is Hell had passed away, and that would be retro Christian anti-televangelist Oli Anthony, who was on our show way back in June of 1999 because... Having a Christian on who believed that Christianity had lost its way after the first century ACE and was finding televangelism run through with fraud, to a lot of our audience, I thought, well, this is hell. Oli died back on April 16th at the end, at the age of 82, according to the New York Times uh, yesterday. And you got to read that obituary in yesterday's Times because... It has gems like these. He joined the Air Force in 1956 after being offered the choice of military service or prison. In 1958, he was sent to an island in the South Pacific where he was supposed to watch a small nuclear test many miles away. But the explosion was much larger than expected, and the radiation left him with scores of knobby tumors throughout his body. In a 2004 profile in The New Yorker, he told the journalist Burkhard Bilger that he had continued his work for the Air Force, sneaking behind the iron and bamboo curtains to install long-range sensors to detect Chinese and Soviet nuclear tests through a Though a later investigation by the Dallas Observer, a weekly newspaper, called that claim into question. Within his first uh, century Christian religion called the Trinity Foundation, named for the site of the nuclear explosions, not the Christian Trinity, among his followers was a writer and actor named John Bloom, who performs under the name Joe Bob Briggs. And yes, that name sounds familiar because he hosted something on TNT in the late 90s called Monster Vision and still hosts a show online called The Last Drive-In. 
1980, Oli accompanied Joe Bob Briggs on a trip to Milan, Italy, where Briggs was investigating a stolen art ring for Texas Monthly. The deal went bad, Briggs wrote, and the two, along with an informant, fled to Beirut, Lebanon. After Briggs flew to Paris, the informant took Oli Anthony hostage at one point, putting a gun to his head until he was rescued by American agents. So yeah, we're playing the wacky interview with wonderful weirdo Oli Anthony on tomorrow's Friday's Patreon podcast from June 1999. Alex, when you listened, who was the producer of the show that week? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. I just listened to the beginning, middle of it to make sure the audio quality sounded good because it's like a super old interview. And uh, the first thing he was talking about was ancient Jews. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's him. <it. laughs> yeah, it's great. I'm real excited for this one. Uh, yeah, he's really into Jewish mysticism. Meanwhile, we are all suffering from virus fatigue and we cannot wait to get back to normal with many already fully vaccinated. But before we do that, let's think about what that normal was. And if we want that normal, the normal that got us here in the first place, you know, after all, if we are all complicit in the crises of the pandemic and climate change, shouldn't we be considering how we can contribute less to both crises now so we can avoid the normal that doomed us to a heating planet and a worldwide plague? But you can only hear that one-of-a-kind Ole Anthony talk and returning to the new normal by subscribing to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time podcast shortly after at the same place. Again, patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks for subscribing to our newest Patreon patron, Matthew W. Thanks, Matthew, for contributing to completely listener supported This Is Hell. In a few, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth when Jeff processes his reaction to the great, greatest cosmic blunder. I'm your host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, Remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners answering? This week's question from hell is, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Joshua L. says, smell of sulfur from a burning cop car near City Hall as a medic in a medical mask and leather jacket word by me on an electric unicycle, <laughs> the only vehicle on the usually busy road. What is it? It sounds like he's like in a... a science fiction version of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It's very bizarre. Bradley R. says, ah, those quaint days of yesteryear when the worst thing about the pandemic was that there was only one at a time. Peter J. says, paying a monthly subscription to my favorite podcast, this is hell. Sorry, you guys. Didn't know how else to break it to you. <laughs> Look, Peter, I know you've got deep pockets. So, come on. What are you kidding? Who are you kidding? Austin R.M. says, my visits with Nana and Mima, my great-grandma, 91, and my grandma, 74. And then uh, via Twitter DM, email, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Adam B. posts uh, a link to a website that advises on the improper use of disinfectants. And I assume one of those is uh, ingesting them. Uh, Ann H. says, I will miss our collective naivete that one day this would be over. Teresita G. says, my home, says the 8 million American households behind on rent. What about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Daniel Z. says, the newness of it all. Flying N says, the fleeting moment where capitalism ground to a halt. Rock Taster says, podcasts. Ham radio is all conspiracy and the production value isn't close. No, it's not good. Our friends at Hypocrite Reader who have a new issue out say, new masks smell. And then finally, Stray Shine says, I will miss the sting of the fresh realization that people generally disappoint me and that I'll care more about other people's health than they'll care about their own. Next pandemic won't have the same aha moments. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week Scratch that. All of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. Even. You know what to do. One more time. Oh, don't you have to. Oh, don't you have to.
The universe's favorite mistake. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Another friend died. Another important one, too. I hate to rank friends according to importance, but when they die, they kind of arrange themselves that way, I guess. One year before the lockdown, Danny Thompson, multi-talented genius, comic and otherwise, co-founder of Theater Ublack and co-author of the Complete Lost Works of Samuel Beckett as found in an envelope, partially burned, in a dustbin in Paris labeled, Never to be performed, never, ever, ever, or I'll sue, I'll sue from the grave, died a rare, shocking, and untimely death. It was a transformative end to a transformative life. It changed everything. Everything he ever dragged me into was successful. Everything he ever dragged anyone into. Everything he ever let himself get dragged into. I know success is a relative term. So's important. All the words I'm using today have fluid, irrational meanings. Every word. I'm writing about Michael Martin whose theater career overlapped with Danny's during some decades in Chicago. Two days ago, it was Michael Martin. We all used to call him Michael Martin. His friends called him Michael Martin. People had all kinds of doings with the fellow. They were in plays with him. They were in parades with him. They saw the plays he wrote, saw him perform the monologues he wrote, saw him perform plays others wrote, watched him act in movies. One of the plays he wrote introduced me to S&M and bondage jargon only a few months before I got into a relationship where such knowledge was required. Phew, I was almost too close for comfort. He lived with his husband and two others in New Orleans in a house called the House of Aging Homosexuals. The house had a Facebook account from which announcements would emerge of various drag queen events and activities and declarations of mood and condition and efforts at repair and restoration. He had his own personal social media accounts too. His Twitter account was the main way I was in touch with him, although he was more often in touch with me. He mailed me a couple of postcards and once a moon pie and an enchanting photo of him as one of his characters, Madame de Camelto. He was constantly mailing stuff, writing stuff, acting in stuff, auditioning for films and TV, on top of taking care that the House of Aging Homosexuals continued to house its eponymous inhabitants, that bills were paid and paperwork was done. He had clients and neighbors for whom he did home care and clients for whom he did cross-dressing housework. I often pictured him flying around someone's decaying New Orleans Victorian in a negligee, wielding a feather duster. A few days ago, in his early to mid-60s, he'd got a new job as the night desk clerk in a hotel. His life was then almost the perfect Tom Waits song about a John Waters movie beloved by a character in a confederacy of dunces. He had a lean frame without an ounce of body fat on him. You could see a skeleton in the proper light. His every expression was a black and white Van Gogh Sumi spray of wrinkles accentuating the topography of his face. He had a face made to be photographed. There's no way to describe it although I've gone and made the foolish attempt. He had the face of a 250-year-old Civil War veteran. 
During the past year, he'd been getting glowing reviews for his standout performance in the feature film Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, and I half expected him to win an Oscar. Everyone I know who knew him hoped it would give him the fame he needed to be a full-time actor or part-time actor, part-time writer, so he wouldn't need to do the chores he needed to do to make money to live. We all know it was capitalism that took him untimely from us as he walked to work at his night clerk job, because even in the life he'd crafted for himself out of his joy, knowledge, talent, and love, he was still on his own, fighting for survival like this was the Hunger Games we all know it to be. We all imagine and hope he died painlessly, swiftly, in the cosmic whirlpool of his life's memories flooding out from his mighty brain. The death of one's friends is a major flaw in the system. I don't know to whom to complain, but complain I must because that's how I was brought up. I know there's no solution. Life is a ridiculous finger trap. There used to be a store in Chicago where you could buy ridiculous finger traps. You could buy all types of such things there. My favorites were the erasers shaped like pigs. You could stick them on the end of your pencil. That store was called Uncle Fun. Uncle Fun, alias Ted Frankel, closed his Chicago store and opened one in Baltimore inside the American Visionary Art Museum. It's called the Sideshow in the American Visionary Art Museum. Baltimore is where Ted met his husband. A while ago... A small contingent of Ublek people, under the team name The No Good Nicks, won the Hideout Bars Trivia Contest. The special guest was Uncle Fun himself, and he let us in on a little trivia of his own. No two fake vomits are exactly alike. They are made by hand in an improvisational manner, according to the craftsperson's fiat, within the wiggle room of the decreed fake vomit specifications. And that seems to me the perfect metaphor for a human life in our world today. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. I was going to do a shorter show today because uh, I know. went over, <laughs> and then Adolfo was so amazing, I couldn't stop talking to him. Did you listen in? I did. I even uh, I even t- tweeted during it saying Adolfo was killing it. it he, that was amazing, wasn't it? That well, it was, especially the stuff about um, the 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 stuff about uh, racializing the problem and not wanting to, you know, not not making it a class issue and uh how he he thought that was a huge mistake yeah the thing uh, that i kept thinking about it was driving me crazy is mm-hmm. so the police it says on you know cop cars it says serve and protect yet mm-hmm. we're supposed to respect their authority and i can't think of another service employee that has authority over us that we're supposed to respect you know <laughs> It seems, yes. to be, it seems to be a contradiction that they're supposed to uh, serve and protect us, but yet they're still supposed to have authority over us? That, that doesn't oh, really make sense. Oh, they can kick us around, yeah. How, they, they can kick us, push us. They're, they're bullies. They're bullies. I mean, if you had a waiter like that at a restaurant, waiter came up and said, you're having a macaroni. <laughs> 
Shut the shut up. <laughs> um, hey, Chuck, yeah. is is Joe Bob Briggs still alive? Yes. Because I think you should have him on the show and ask him about that stuff. That's incredible. Like, the only way I know him is like one of the theater who black people was like, oh, Joe Bob Briggs. He's the host of this show. I love Joe Bob Briggs. He's such a, and like, and then I watched it. And then he's in Lebanon. <laughs> Investing in an art theft ring oh, with God. only Anthony. That is zany. <laughs> exactly. Zane. It's the Shut. best. It's the best obituary I have read in so long. It's wow. too bad that Ole Anthony had to die for it to be written. Well, you know that's that's how it works. It's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna obituary. That's the way they get you. That's the ridiculous finger trap. It's Chuck, like catch twenty two. I feel like you missed, like you, like you, um, you misunderstood my my answer to the question from out this week. I said the thing I would miss about this pandemic mm-hmm. when we're in the next pandemic yeah. was the slow, leisurely pace of mass death, <laughs> which it which implies that next, next time, time mass death will be rampant and fast. <laughs> Not leisurely and in that, any way. No, people will be dropping dead, their skin peeling off. Anyway. Uh, You're still not winning. Until next time, Jeffy. <laughs> what? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Alex, please remind us what's this week's question, Helen. Do we have any more responses to this week's question? Uh, yeah, we got a few. Uh, what about this pandemic? You need to be nostalgic about next pandemic. Sleeve M says, President Trump, who was never as bad as President DeSantis, at least Trump had class. <laughs> hey, who, who let a Democratic <laughs> wow. voter three years from now in here? Wow. Uh, old pal EatFart69 says, those 2,000 checks that were really only $1,400. Red State Red says, the healing power of prayer and those sweet, sweet stimmies. <laughs> Stimulants? Yeah. Apollo S says, all of it. In the good old days, you only needed a face mask to go to the park. What's a park? What are you going to be, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Ursula W says, coastal cities. Edison K says, the blue in the sky. Free Melly says, the novelty. Kratom Science says, (laughs) Kratom Science? uh, The fact that it was an introvert paradise. Fluffy Fluffy Cat says, being able to legally criticize Bill Gates. Solar Punk Communalist says, remember Animal Crossing and Hades? Those were cool when video games still existed. They helped so many people get through the stupid. Joseph W. says, the anti-vaxxers. And finally, what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Tim says, at least the gastrointestinal issues were near the bottom of the symptom list this time around. The uh, answers I like the most were John saying church from my bathroom because I don't know what that means and I can kind of imagine what it does and all I'm thinking of is John sitting on the toilet with an iPad watching church I guess and saying I will miss our collective naivete that one day this would be over I like flying needles the fleeting moment where capitalism ground to a halt Teresita G saying my home says the 8 million American households behind on rent. Rob saying the naivete that we'd unite as a nation or a world to put aside profits long enough to keep everyone safe and get them vaccinated before things were rushed back to some 
UFO normalcy, Spencer saying you could still get murdered in broad daylight by a human cop instead of a pack of Boston Dynamics robot dogs. Marco saying the hope for a revolution and also day drinking. And Jacob, I really liked his response to this week's question from hell. What about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? And Jacob said the vanishing small amount of time people pretended to care about essential workers. So, Alex, any of those really stick out to you? I know which one does to me. I'll defer to you. I actually also like Ronaldo's that it still snowed in January. (laughs) uh, I'll defer to you on this one. I got to go with Anne. I will miss our collective naivete that one day this would be over. That's an answer from hell. And Anne, you have won whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. And if you want a t-shirt, you want a tote bag, you want a coffee mug, you want the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive, uh, you want a trucker's cap, you want a winter hat, you want a face mask, any of that stuff, and it's yours, just send us a message via Facebook with which piece of merchandise you want and your mailing address, and we'll get it out to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? My answer is... Stimulus checks that pay for weed so I can chain smoke daily and wake and bake on weekends. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is chewing raw cabbage or mixing cabbage juice with tomato juice. Thanks to this week's guests, including economist James K. Galbraith, who posted the column Who's Afraid of MMT? And there is a discussion with people writing very essay-long responses to that interview. So if you want to go to our Facebook page and check that out and get in on the conversation. Also, thanks to sociologist James Doucette Battle, author of Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes. Thanks to yesterday's guest, award-winning journalist and correspondent Vincent Bevins, who is author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. And thanks to today's guest, criminal defense attorney Adolfo Minka, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing and Richard Norwood and Jess Lipka for running the board this week and everything else they do for the show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is how when we will be well, well, we'll be talking to you about going back to normal and how maybe that's not the best idea and how, to be honest with you, I don't want to go back to normal. And we'll also be sharing tomorrow our June 1999 interview with sketchy re- religious zealot who hated televangelists and busted some for fraud by digging through their garbage, the late Ole Anthony. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz producing... Today's show is Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.